Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 252 of the podcast. It is June 7th, 2016. This episode is sponsored by StoreSmart. I'd like to welcome StoreSmart as a new advertiser on leanblog.org and a sponsor here on the podcast. StoreSmart is an American manufacturer of products to support your lean journey, whether that's in manufacturing, healthcare, or beyond. They sell A3 document holders, status magnets, all sorts of other products to help support huddles and visual display boards, 5S, Kanban, and more. I'd invite you to visit their website. You can go to www.storesmart.com slash leanblog. And now on to today's episode. So my guest today is Jordan Peck. He's a senior director in the Center for Performance Improvement at Maine Health and Maine Medical Center. Jordan and I first met when he was a graduate student at MIT. He was involved with the Lean Advancement Initiative. I was working basically across the street at the Lean Enterprise Institute uh, at the time. At MIT, Jordan earned a PhD in engineering systems with a focus on healthcare systems. And you know, he and I have continued to cross paths, essentially, I think every single year at the Society for Health Systems annual conference. His career has taken him uh, to the Veterans Health Administration and now into the private sector, where he's spent about two years now working at Maine Health, as we discuss in the podcast. So if you want to see a link uh, to Jordan's profile or any of the things that we talk about here in the episode, go to leanblog.org slash 252. Jordan, hey, it's great to talk to you today, and thank you for being a guest on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, can you start off, maybe you know, just introduce yourself and, and your background, your academic background, and the work you're doing today? Sure. So uh, my name is Jordan Peck. I uh, am a mechanical engineering and physics major by training in undergrad and um, realized I, I wanted to do something more um, than classic engineering, <clears throat> had no idea of all this industrial engineering work that had been being done at, at Binghamton where I went to undergrad. Um, and so then actually went to MIT and got a master's in technology and policy uh, where I got, that's where I first got introduced to lean hmm. um, and pursued my PhD in the engineering systems division there in the lab called the Lean Enterprise Initiative um, which is where I met you <laughs> as I started to get introduced to lean in this weird backwards way that I was studying enterprise lean and um, enterprise transformation before getting introduced to the classic um, lean or getting any type of belt. So I was studying all this cultural change, change stuff and all sorts of lean, but but no methodologies, no tools in the, and, and when to go pick up those tools later on. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I have an interesting sort of backwards way of, of getting into lean and, and, and this kind of work. Um, and then since then, uh, my, my research at MIT was funded by the Veterans Health Administration, where I went to work as a, uh, as a senior staff engineer after I graduated. And now I'm uh, sitting as the senior director of the Center for Performance Improvement at, at Maine Health in Portland, Maine. Yeah, there, there's a, a funny history um, with MIT and Lean for people who might not 
be familiar with that. I, I sometimes take it for granted that people that know those connections, maybe we can just kind of dive into that a little bit deeper. You know, Jim Womack was a, a professor at MIT uh, back during the writing of The Machine That Changed the World. And you know he left and started LEI, the Lean Enterprise Institute. Um, can, you, can you describe the LAI uh, briefly at MIT? The Lean, it was originally the Lean Aerospace Initiative, but it sort of evolved, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you had Lean Aerospace Initiative with um, Earl Merman, and um, it was based off of the model of the International Motor Vehicle Program, um, but for aerospace. Mm-hmm. And this idea that you know, we learned so much from from looking at all the different automotive companies leading to the machine that changed the world that, you know, can we do the same for aerospace? And the, the, the framing that they went after was looking at enterprise, lean enterprise and lean supply chain and, and all the different pieces that go into lean um, beyond the process improvement work that people often associate with. Or at least beyond the walls of the factory. Exactly. The entire business and supply chain. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, really taking that big picture view, um, which was always the intent of Lean, of course, but, you know, this was, they were trying to focus on that. And, um, you know, there was this interesting consortium of different aerospace companies, Boeing and Raytheon, um, and, and a few others, and then some good work came out of that. And then over time, they realized, hey, healthcare is getting big. Um, you know, there's other service sectors that that are interested in this. So let's expand. And I guess in order to save on logo <laughs> stuff, instead of changing the name completely, they went from Lean Aerospace Initiative to Lean Advancement Initiative and kept the LAI logo. <laughs> well, anything with an acronym on it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, you know, you you may, I mean, I think we probably both run across this in healthcare sometimes, this idea of, yeah, being, you know, people saying we're different. I mean, in aerospace, was there still, uh, did you run into that mindset of people saying, look, we're different than automakers, planes are far more complex and expensive and, you know, more, you know, more unique than cars that are being built or were, were, were people, at least in this time frame in the late 2000s, were they, were they sort of on board with this in aerospace? You know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have come in when we were no longer trying to sell it to aerospace. It was already pretty well accepted. Um, you had some great uh, lean leaders in, in aerospace, uh, in Boeing, and I'm, I'm you probably know her name. I forget her name. Who um, was a leader in Boeing and now sits on, I think, Virginia Mason's. Carolyn Corvey. Yes. Yes. Yeah. She's on the board. Yeah, Virginia Mason Medical Center. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you know, people like her who really got it. Um, and so I, for me, actually, what what I was able to take from this was see the results. You know that that there probably was that kind of pushback early on, and people saying, I, I think if you were to talk to Earl Merman, he, he would say that you know aerospace companies came to him and said, hey, could you do this? Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't even sure that this would be possible. Um, and so by the time I started, it was proven possible. It was proven that it was mm-hmm. something that that can be done. Um, and I was in, on that early wave, at least over at MIT, of looking at healthcare and doing lean in healthcare. And that question, like you said. Of, is this even possible? We're different. We do things differently. Mm-hmm. And I still face that today yeah. um, as we've been rolling out our culture of improvement here at Maine Health. 
our lean daily management system, um, it's amazing because you go to a hospital and they say, yeah, you can do this in manufacturing, but can you do it here? And then we do it. And then we were asked to do it in corporate office. And they say, yeah, you could do this in the hospital and in manufacturing, but can you do it in an office? And then we do it. And then we go, then we rolled it out at our IT department, um, which is a fairly large organization in itself. And they say, yeah, we get that you can do it in a, in a hospital and in a corporate office, but can you do it in a process-based industry like, like IT? And I'm like, yes, yes, yeah. yes we can. The, the weird differentism, you know, pops up. I mean, even I'm thinking back, you know, and you're, you're right. We're still to some extent, we're, we're selling some people on the idea of lean in healthcare today. Uh, even though I think it, it's been proven it can apply. But, you know, I think back to 2005, uh, lean was being adopted in hospital labs because you could sort of look and say, well, the lab is sort of like a factory. There's sometimes, you know, there's there's no direct patient contact. You're moving tubes of blood. You're managing information. You have a highly skilled workforce. It's sort of like a high tech factory. And then after it was demonstrated there, you might look at, say, you know, microbiology, which is very labor intensive instead of uh, um, using the lab testing equipment like well yeah that might work in you know for blood chemistry testing but we spend all day with our our face in uh plates you know this is very manual and this is science lean doesn't apply here until well they find out yeah yeah it can it does it just has to be you know looked at the right way yeah exactly and you know i try to emphasize going back to frederick taylor and this idea of scientific management and then the roots of pdsa and that it, it's science in itself, you know, and, and these people get that idea of having a hypothesis and testing it out and collecting data um, and fundamentally using scientific principles to not just explore science, but to explore how we work and improve how we work. And that seems to, to sell over the, the scientific types. <laughs> yeah. You know, physicians take to that as well. Yeah. Lab, lab scientists and, and physicians and, and others. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think the one advance from the days of Frederick Taylor 100 years ago, and you know, I'm an industrial engineer, and Frederick Taylor is considered one of the uh, early creators of the industrial engineering field. I mean, I think, you know, there's been an evolution through Toyota and modern lean where it's it's less about the engineer standing there with a stopwatch and a clipboard telling people how to work or engaging people in being their own scientists and improving their own work and i, I think that's the i think that's the big one of the big innovations of of the lean approach to to scientific uh, improvement yeah, that's such an important point um you know again to that that question that people always say that we're different one of the things i find has helped me is when I go and I, I present this concept and, and lean daily management to to staff, often, especially the ones who have been around for a while, say to me, isn't this just the same thing? Mm -hmm. You know, isn't this, I remember back in the day they tried to do total quality management, and mm -hmm. management by walking around and, and Six Sigma. And I remember hearing lean before and microsystems is a big one up here coming out of Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. um, and and I say, well, you know, fundamentally, yes, they are they are based on the same basic principles, but over time, there has been a lot of people studying what works, what doesn't, um, how to manage cultural change, how to apply the the concepts differently, and not just focus on specific tools. And while it is similar in the most basic sense, 
um, the implementation is what matters and, and how we do it really matters. And this in that way is different, just as surgery back during the Civil War <laughs> fundamentally was helping someone by cutting into them. You can describe surgery like that right now, but you would certainly much rather go through surgery now than in the 1860s. <laughs> yeah, back, back in the day when they had to literally hold the patient down as opposed <laughs> exactly. to using anesthesia. I mean, it's hard to imagine. Exactly, exactly. But fundamentally, if you were to describe it in a sentence, it would be almost the same description. Mm -hmm. So let's um, transition into your shift into healthcare during your time at MIT, you sort of alluded how uh, the lean advancement initiative was uh, was getting involved in healthcare. And, and what were, I'm curious to hear about some of your early work uh, in, in healthcare, what you were doing. Yeah. So my, my uh, entry to healthcare was totally by accident. I had studied at the National Institute of Standards, Standards and Technology. My, I did internships there and um, growing nickel nanowires <laughs> and studying their their tensile strength. Um, and interestingly enough, I had seen actually at the time the the part of the building that was devoted to the Baldridge Award, and, and I regret mm -hmm. now not exploring that. Um, I now I wish I can go in there and get that sort of level yeah. of access to those people. Yeah, and then for people who who don't know Baldridge, the the Malcolm Baldridge uh, National Quality. Uh, prize or program uh, yeah comes yeah roots in the federal government um dr deming uh i think i think a lot of that was built on his approach back in the days of, of of tqm when that was popular exactly yeah and you know it, uh, i wish anyway i would have been a great opportunity but i didn't take it i was down in a lab growing nanowires being a um, good mechanical engineer be, being right? a good I mean, mechanical yeah. engineer um and then I, I, when I got to MIT for the technology and policy program, I was trying to see if I can get a funding, research funding to, to look at policy around nanotechnology. But interestingly enough, the people who study this stuff really don't want to study whether it needs to be regulated or not. <laughs> you know, it's not in their best interest to, to try and push that. Um, but actually, a professor that I reached out to also was managing a, the Park Center for Complex Systems, and they had gotten some funding from uh, Partners Healthcare to apply their systems design methodology, axiomatic design, to uh, to healthcare, to look at the hospital. And they had gotten some funding to look at the emergency department um, at one of the hospitals down there in Boston. And they needed a student. They said, well, if you're interested in people and you're interested in you know, this larger policy stuff, maybe you'll like healthcare. Do you want to give this a try? And at that point, I was desperate for funding. Hmm. Um, and so I was going to take anything. And, and I started doing that and, and did very classic industrial engineering in, in the hospital. I looked at the functional requirements of an emergency department, broke down its, it did a functional decomposition, looked at how triage was done and, and um, realized that there was coupling between this idea of using um, triage to decide how sick someone is and how quickly they'll pass through the system. Um, so there's this common usage of fast track in emergency departments. And this idea is that you only put not so sick patients, ESI level, they use these, this triage level called the ESI system, the Emer mm -hmm. emergency severity index. And they would send four and five patients, so the not so sick ones, to fast track and everyone else to the regular 
ER, and, and our data showed that, in fact, there are many people who are ones, twos, and threes that are actually quite quick. Um, and if you're really looking to have a quick track and a slow track, it's actually worth trying to just differentiate by quick and slow instead of sick and not sick. Mm. Um, and so we started breaking down that, that functional um, coupling that was created by the use of triage. Um, well, is, and so simulated here, that. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to see if you kind of step back and for people. I'm, I'm, I remember studying this. Gosh, it was almost 20 years ago now. Um, refresh my own memory or for the listeners, uh, the phrase axiomatic design, if you could just sort of give uh, a nutshell. Yeah. Of what that methodology is. About. <laughs> I, you know, I love axiomatic design and a lot of people, um, you know, it has similar similar elements to uh, design structure matrices and things like that other design methods that are out there it's it's basically uh using to to design something you have two major axioms which is where the axiomatic mm -hmm. design comes in the first is that the optimal design has a minimal amount of functional couplings um, and we tend to use the example of a sink so you have you have some sinks where you have um, the controlling of flow and temperature all in, in, in multiple dials. You have the cold dial and the hot dial, and both of them control temperature and both of them control flow. Um, where a more optimal design would be one where you have like the typical kitchen sink that you can control flow decoupled from controlling temperature. Mm -hmm. You know, you control flow by how much you pull it out, and you control temperature by what uh, degree you turn the, the dial to. Um, and so that's a more optimal design that you can control the two separate functions separately. Um, the next one, which I think I have viewed, the next axiom is called the information axiom, that the, 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 the more ideal design is one that requires the least amount of information exchange to succeed. And if, you know, <laughs> if... If Dr. Park is listening and I'm misquoting these, I'll, I apologize in advance. But my understanding of it was always that, you know, you can come up with multiple decoupled designs, but some of them require more communication between different parts of the design. And um, one that requires the least amount of communication is better. Things that understand what they need to do without necessarily interacting with other parts of the system. And that's something I've actually carried over into healthcare as I think about, I often use axiomatic design for designing, uh, looking at how we design a department or how we um, look at our approach to a certain project, whatever it is. And um, in fact, I just use it to, to help redesign our quality department. And basically what I always jump to is I want people, you know, we always think in healthcare about adding another coordinator. Oh, things aren't working. You know, people don't know what they do. Let's mm -hmm. let's hire a coordinator, a social worker, a bed manager, whatever it is. That's increasing the points of communication. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's sort of saying there's because there's all this communication, we need someone to manage it versus saying, hey, can we redesign the process such that that communication doesn't need to happen um, in our management system where we have these units doing Kaizen? Um we often have them picking a project they want to work on and they'll jump to the solution. So they'll measure, you know, we're going to have a morning huddle every day or we're going to have mm -hmm. nurses and CNAs meet to do a handoff. And so they, they build that solution into the problem. And I say, actually, your problem is that 
CNAs need to know the information that they need before they start treating a patient. It doesn't mean that the huddle needs to happen. It means they need to get that information. Can we look at, are we using our EMR the best possible way? Are we using notes the best possible way? Is, is a huddle necessarily the best way to do it? Um, and, and so I, I try to, to carry that information axiom always in my head. Can we reduce, can we get it done with less communication? <laughs> yeah. And so when, when you talk about, uh, so how, how does that, maybe talk a little bit more about how that applies, let's say in the design or redesign of an emergency department um, and, and what you mean by functional requirements. Are you talking about the, the, the needs of the patient as a customer, the needs of the different people working in that health system, including the need for information? So, you know, we ended up, despite doing a fairly complex um, functional decomposition, looking at all the different functions of the emergency department in terms of, you know, you need to treat patients, stabilize patients, admit patients, all that kind of thing. Um, we did a separate one of just triage. And, and when I was looking at the, uh, there's an emergency severity index handbook. And it defines, and it's it's online, people can search it and find it. Um, and one of the, the first pages describes the goal of triage as twofold. One, to identify those patients who need immediate assistance and to recognize patients who are high potential for, for fast track, for, for getting quick treatment. It actually specifies that. And so an axiomatic designer, you're able to read that and say, okay, you have two functions. Identify sick patients who need immediate treatment. Identify patients who can be seen quickly. Um, and then this whole ESI system is is designed to accomplish both. And what we suggested is if you can create some sort of, um, if you wanted to decouple that, you would actually need a index for sick, you know, how sick they are, and an index for uh, how quick they would be. And one of the things, and, and so then we designed, you know, we, we sort of made up if you were able to know whether somebody was sick or not, or whether they'd be quick or not, um, how much would it actually improve triage? And so we were able to look at historic data and assume, let's pretend we knew how long these people's length of stay would be. Yeah. And we sent these sick but fast patients to fast track, what would happen? Um, and actually, as far as I know, the, the hospital that we ended up uh, doing this with um, actually started admitting sicker patients to fast track when they believed that they'd be quick. Um, and so, and looked at patients who weren't that sick, but would be, would take a long time, like a dehydration patient needs to, to get yeah. fluid. So mm -hmm. they need an IV. They're not really sick, but they're going to be a long time yeah. versus um, somebody with, with some acute pain that, that needs to be seen, but otherwise, you know, would, would get out pretty quickly. Um, so it's when they decoupled that, they actually saw some, they, I never got the data. Unfortunately, sometimes the, the problem of being a master's student is you give them what you give them and you can't always get stuff afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, my sense from talking to them is, is flow got a little bit better by using fast track more effectively. Yeah. It also increased utilization of those fast track beds. Um, classic queuing would tell you anytime you break up a set of resources, um, you are, you're asking for trouble. Um, and to designate certain beds for a certain population is sort of violating basic uh, principles of, of queuing. Um, and so when they started sending more patients to fast track, it's, it sort of lightened that, that violation. Yeah. 
Yeah, because when, when, you're, when you're dedicating beds or rooms or resources, you're, you're losing flexibility, which is going to hamper flow through that system, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, it makes sense in hospitals that are using benches for fast track. But there's this trend I'm seeing that hospitals invest a lot of money in building really nice fast track units where you have a doctor who's devoted to fast track. And at that point, there's sort of a moral ambiguity that if you have beds that are capable of treating sick patients and you have the same doctor to patient ratio in fast track that you do in the actual emergency department, are you sort of morally bound to, to treat the sicker patients first? Mm. Um, and what you find is with a lot of these units that, that use fast track like that, the patients who wait the longest are the ESI-3, these middle-level patients who don't have priority to the normal ED beds, um, but also don't have priority to the fast-track beds. Um, and, and by decoupling it, by using um, triage to actually just send fast patients to the ED, to, no matter what their, their level of illness, uh, actually improved that and reduced the number of middle patients who are waiting and increased the wait time for not-so-sick patients, which... Mm -hmm in my mind, is okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, this, this actually then led to my PhD work, which was, uh, okay, now that we've decided, can we know who's going to take a long time? What's the major predictor of how long someone's going to take if they need to be admitted? If they need to be admitted, they're going to take a long time, um, just because of all the dynamics of getting someone a bed in the hospital. Um, so I started then studying predictive algorithms. So when a patient arrives at triage, can we actually assign a probability that they would require admission to the hospital and then you know can we improve how we use the emergency department that way but then also can that information be shared with the hospital to figure out well, whether um, to get them to open up some beds yeah that could be yeah very very useful planning if if beds are tight and trying to plan and prioritize to have not people uh, get stuck in the emergency department when instead of being admitted Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it also increases this information. So IHI likes to push discharge by noon, or it used to. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, or not push, but advertise the value. Advocate of it. for that. Yeah, yeah advocate yeah. for it. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and a lot of providers push back because there's that, that trade-off. And I like to describe it with the news vendor problem. Um, but there's this trade-off of, okay, I can go spend my time discharging a patient. Um, but if no patients end up needing that bed, I just wasted that time when I could have been treating someone who's sicker that I, that I have yet to see. Um, so they, they worry about spending all their time discharging in the morning and not seeing the patients that need treatment. Um, because if they open up those beds and those beds aren't needed, then it was a waste of time sort of, um, when in reality, those beds are always needed. So, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, it's sort of, but this is what's going on in their head a lot of time. And sometimes they're right. And so when you have a, if you were to have a predictive algorithm to say, look, there are, you know, 20 patients in the emergency to write department right now. Um, and they have a distribution of different probabilities of being admitted. And if you add up all those probabilities, you can have a expected number of admissions of four. Um, that then tells them, yes, there's real demand. It's worth opening up this, this yeah. bed. Yeah. And, uh, we, we won't dig deeper into this, but you mentioned, uh, a phrase there, a news vendor problem, uh, 
kind of you know operations management, operations research, industrial engineering term and framework for determining uh, inventory levels. Um, I guess you know to boy, if we were doing a uh, industrial engineering podcast, we could dive deeper into that. But <laughs> so maybe um, next time. If anyone's curious yeah, about they, that, you know, they they can do a Google search for news vendor problem. Uh, just kind of a general model that's uh, useful. Exactly. The, the simple explanation is, you know, a news vendor needs to decide how many newspapers to order. There's a cost to ordering too many. There's an opportunity a cost to ordering too few. Yeah. How do you decide which one to do? Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's talk about um, what you've been doing at, at Maine Health. Um, spend the rest of the podcast on that. You've already sort of you know alluded to this, the idea of a lean daily management system. Um, why don't you maybe just kind of give a quick overview of, of main healthy organization and how you would define a lean daily management system? Yeah, sure. You know, so it, it, it's interesting as when I was at the VA, I was doing what many people who are listening to this podcast probably do right now, which is a lean person who does projects. You know, I would, I would get called in they say, I need you to look at this problem and I'd get together all these stakeholders and we'd have meetings and I'd facilitate and do process maps and we'd get some some benefits sometimes more than others and then I'd leave and and the level of improvement that could be achieved was based purely based on my own capacity to come and help run these projects they also had this they tried to model um, the same huddle boards that that uh, ThetaCare uses, where you have a section for ideas and A3s and, and PDSA and, and, and celebrations and all that, and you have this board in the unit. Um, and they rolled these out to all these different units and called them engaged work teams, but we didn't actually engage those boards very much. It was a tool, and sometimes we trained people and gave them white belt, quote-unquote, status, and some of them got yellow belt status, and there were some improvements that came from it, but it, it, it wasn't fully scoped out and, and, and really the, the limitation was on how many improvement experts we had dedicated to doing projects. Mm. Um, and even though I had studied at, at MIT and, and looking at lean enterprise and knew this idea that you're supposed to have a daily management system and really build this into the front line. And I, so I knew better and yet fell very quickly into this model that, that seems to be very prevalent of just having a couple of experts who run around and do the project. I mean, why, why do you think that was? You say you knew better, but were there kind of demands placed on you by the organization to do projects? Or Yeah, you know, so and, and that's, uh, yeah, so I think what it comes down to is you end up falling into uh, today's work. You know, so you get there, there's a project waiting for you, you start working on it, another project comes up, you start working on that, um, and and you get busy. And the other pieces, and then you sit there. So actually one of the things that, you know, when we decided to, to have this discussion on the air, we had been doing that panel, and somebody asked, how do you know which organization to work on? We had been doing a panel at the Society for Healthcare mm -hmm. Systems, and there was a person looking to get into this career, and they said, how do you know which where to work? And or what's a good job? And I said, look for one that's already doing it. Look for one that already has a good leader because it's very hard to try to push it from the bottom up. Um, and that was true. I mean, it's hard to push anything at the VA. It's a gigantic organization. So whether I knew better or not that we need a lean daily management system, the, 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 sheer, um, the sheer daunting challenge of trying to build that at the VA was, was well beyond me with my first year of, of work experience. Um, 
and that's when I got actually I, I started um, I ended up moving to Maine really just because I wanted to live up here. It's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Um, and my wife's family is from here. Um, and so I found Maine Health and actually I, I, I fell into this system that's, I believe, closer to the right way of doing things um, by accident. Um, but I'm really glad I did. And when I came up here and I saw it, I, it occurred to me that, yes, this is this is the right way to do it. And so, you know, what we do is we have boards in every unit, um, but they're much simpler. We, we have them pick three things they're going to work on. Um, we use a misnomer. We call them KPIs, key performance indicators, but they, they're, they rotate around. They're, they're really just PDSAs, small things that these units want to work on. Um, and each one has data behind it. You have to have a run chart and a Pareto chart that's looking at your goal, what you want to achieve, and why you might not have achieved it. Um, and they have three of them, and every day, senior leaders visit every unit. Um, so we break up the hospital into these different Gemba routes, um, where senior leaders, you know, they're, they're they're all timed out, so units know exactly when they're going to get visited every single day, and each route is led by a VP or above. And uh, these units have a two-minute presentation. There's a one staffer at each unit who says. These are our KPIs. This is what happened yesterday. Do you have any questions? People on the walk might ask questions. And then the senior leader says, is there anything I can do for you? Mm. And, and offers that, that help. You know, and there's a little bit coaching that happens sometimes if their wording of their, of their improvement activity isn't quite right. We had one the other day that, you know, it wasn't finger pointing, but it sounded like finger pointing. Mm-hmm. You know, they were saying, you know, we're going to work better with the blood bank or whatever it was. And, um, you know, we, we want, well, a great example is we, we had one unit that was a, a birthing unit. They wanted to get their lab tests back within an hour, their stat lab tests back within an hour. And so their their goal was 100% of the time we'll get our stat lab tests back within an hour. Um, and that sort of looks like blame on the lab. Um, but we sort of let it sit, and, and after some time, some interesting uh Results came back, which is that there was a certain lab test that was taking more than an hour, and it turns out that it just takes more than an hour to run, let alone the time it takes to send it down to the lab and then get it back, get the results back from the lab. Um, so, you know, send the sample down to the lab and get the results back. So they're never going to get it back within an hour. And in the meantime, they're expecting it within an hour. They're calling the lab, which then interrupts their work, and it creates mm. a lot of, you know, bad blood. And so, you know, through this coaching and through looking at it, what started out as seeming like finger pointing actually ended up being a valuable learning experience where now they don't expect it. They don't call the lab, which doesn't interrupt their workflow. So they get their other things back on time and they just know that this one test takes a little bit longer. Mm. Um, So those kind of things that, that people are working on. And from my perspective as an improvement expert, quote unquote, is is. I can have so much more impact coaching these units that are working on their own improvements and spending my days going on these Gemba walks, teaching classes to really how do you pick a strong key performance indicator, how do you measure it effectively, um, and then teaching them some tools on demand. Hey, it looks like you can use a process map. Let me teach you how to do this. You know, why don't you try a root cause analysis, you know, the five whys, whatever it is, or if they're complaining about supplies, 100% of the time we're going to have the supplies we need, then I'll come down and teach them 5S. Or, um, 
the amount of impact I've had doing that as opposed to one project on at a time mm. has been tremendous. Um, not to mention the leadership participation. Um, and what's cool about it is leaders don't have to become lean experts, right? They just have to do what really they wanted to do anyway, which is visit the units every day. Mm. Well, and, <laughs> and just, that's that's yes. a new that's a new habit for everybody involved. I'm I'm, I'm sure you know. There's, I think, sometimes a discomfort on the part of executives to do that. Sometimes I think, you know, people aren't used to being visited in, in departments. So I'm, I'm curious what you've seen or where you've had to coach people around those visits, those those presentations around the huddle boards, um, kind of lessons learned about how to help people get comfortable with that. Does it just take time? Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great question. You know, it's one of these things that I, I, I've been struggling with, because when you look at Theta Care or Virginia Mason or, you know, a lot of these organizations that have been very successful, you all often find that it's because a senior leader really got bought in, the CEO or, you know, someone else really high up got bought in, started visiting um, Japan, um, reading your books, you know, <laughs> going on the blogs. They become real experts in this, get their own certification. Um, and then they push push it or, or encourage their their fellow leaders, and then it becomes this leadership driven thing where these leaders feel expert at improvement and feel comfortable with this coaching. And um, our system is somewhat more bottom up. We just tell them, look, you, you have to visit these units every day and encourage that. You can't just train them and lean and send them back and hope they're going to use it. You actually have to be part of the conversation and part of encouraging it. And um, we give them the structure around it through these Gemba walks and through the scripts on the Gemba walks. But that's but then you have this moment of interaction. These leaders are in front of a board. The staff member just presented. They see something that maybe strikes them as not right. Um, they aren't really lean trained. They haven't done all this uh, study and observation about what it means to lead from behind, what it means to coach in a lean um, organization. None of them have read um, Shook's learning, mm. um, <laughs> you know, not learning to see. It was um, managing to managing learn. Managing to learn. Yeah. Uh, you know, so none of them, none of them have read that. So they don't, they don't really know this kind of subtle interaction leading in a in a lean world. And you get a lot of this difficult. Sometimes they'll try and coach, um, and it'll seem like criticism. Uh, often what they'll do is jump to a conclusion, you know, or, or jump to their, their perceived solution um, rather than just sort of stepping back and letting the staff keep mm -hmm. on tracking their data and give them time to work on it on their own. Um, and then staff see almost any comment as criticism because um, we're still, even though we're starting to change the culture, we're still that old culture where when a leader comes and comments on something you're doing, it means you are doing it quote unquote wrong. Um, and in many ways, uh, I feel like part of becoming as, as we evolve, it's not that people aren't doing things wrong. It's that it should be okay to be wrong. That when a leader mm -hmm. comes and talks to you and says, Hey, you should look at this a different way. Maybe they were, you know, wrong or approaching it the incorrect way, but that's okay. That doesn't mean they, they're in trouble. It, it's okay to be wrong. It's what we like to say. It's, um, we have them code their goal for the day. Did, if they made their goal, they, they have a green square, and if they didn't, they're red. Um, and red is good. You know, we want to see that something didn't go well, that, that something is wrong. That's a good thing. We've exposed it, and that gives us a chance to work on it. 
Um, and that that whole culture is is still, I, I think, a few years off. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's I mean these are these are new habits, these are new mindsets. It's not as simple as just training somebody. These are the new mindsets. Adopt them now. I mean, people have all sorts of habits. Um, it's harder to unlearn some of those old leader behaviors, right? Exactly. But what I have seen is an early win from this kind of a system is that leaders who wanted to do something, who wanted to try, who wanted to be involved, but just didn't know how, now have a framework. And it becomes our foundation for doing everything. You know, we want to, we want a, a practice to, to try to pursue becoming a patient centered medical home. You know, how would we have done it in the past? It would have been messy with committee meetings once a month that, that half the time go nowhere. And now they can use the KPIs to slowly drive a little improvement here, a little improvement there to achieve that, that um, certification. And so it, it has become a, a method that people can rely on and people are comfortable with for getting everything done. Um, and my dream is to just get rid of those monthly committee meetings that I don't <laughs> think anybody really likes. <laughs> yeah. And, and the effectiveness is sometimes... Uh not really high with uh, the, 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 the committees because I've, I've seen, you know, a common problem out there. People get together and they just, they, they talk about it and then nothing happens and they get back together and they talk about it again, as opposed to, um, you know, trying to break problems down. You know, if this is where, you know, you describe the smaller PDSA, sometimes it's better to, to work on, uh, to, to break a problem down, not to, you know, not to suboptimize anything, but not try to boil the ocean, quote unquote. And I think a lot of times people in healthcare, they mean well, and they, there's big, important problems to solve, but sometimes they get framed in a way that's very unsolvable, at least through that committee approach. Exactly. You know, and, and so the approach we've taken now, with, now that we've rolled out these boards, and we're still in the process, it's going to be years. Um, we do about 10 units a month per organization. So we have the eight hospitals in the main health system, and we're so we're slowly rolling it out across the whole system. Um, and what we do is when when a, the leaders say we have some big problem we want to tackle, emergency department flow, inpatient flow, revenue cycle, whatever it is, rather than agree to you know often what they want is me to come sit on a committee. You know, Jordan, mm -hmm, can you mm -hmm. be that that improvement mindset on the committee? And I say, no, I don't have time for that. <laughs> but we can do a value stream map and from that value stream map identify all of the different potential KPIs that can be done across this value stream and then go engage those units and ask them, you know, to adopt these KPIs. You know, it's it's staff driven, so they have to want to work on it. So we have to engage them on on knowing that this is really important and, and let them pick it. And then, you know, some of the things might be Kaizen events. So often I'll say, I, I don't have time to sit on a committee for, for the next three years, but I do have time to take three days, five days out of a week and just get it done. Um, so we, we try to, to change that mindset for how you, like you said, boil the ocean and you take this big problem and break it down into all the different small components. And then, assign the right approach to each component so it's been fun it's been very gratifying well good and you've been at it how long at main health two years two almost years. exactly two years uh you know i came up and it's interesting i i had i remember when i was getting interviewed my 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 uh supervisor the vp of value improvement says to me you know how do you measure the success of one of these cultures 
because uh, they were talking about starting to roll this out. It was being done up at Penn Bay. Their their COO had brought it with him from Vanguard Health System. He's a very dynamic, exactly that kind of leader you always want to you always want to see. Uh, a guy named Eric Frederick, and um, you know they were looking to spread this to the rest of Maine Health, and so that's when I was getting hired. Is they were looking for somebody to lead that spread. And um, she said to me, how do you measure this? We, we need to go talk to these CEOs and convince them to take on this lean daily management system. How are we going to sell it to them? And I, I said, look, frankly, you, early on you can't. There's, mm-hmm. no, there's no one measure to the success yeah. of all these hundreds of, of key performance indicators they're going to work on. In the end, it's, it's the sum of each individual success. You save a nurse 20 steps here, you reduce inventory at it to a certain level there and improve communication, improve satisfaction. These are small things that add up and I, there, there is no way. Um, in the long run, you have the, the bigger organizational measures, you know, employee satisfaction, revenue, um, you know, cutting costs, improving quality, improving turnaround time. But those are the complex addition of of thousands of KPIs and improvement projects over time and and you just can't and even then after five years if everything gets better can you systematically prove that it was the KPI system the (laughs) daily management no you can't so I I said to her look if if you're either bought in or or not they're either bought in or not they either believe this is right or they don't (laughs) Um, they just have to, to believe it and What's really cool about this system and the Gemba walks and all that is that these leaders see what's going on. They get to interact. And, and often when we're rolling it out, their first question is, okay, how long are we going to do this until we evaluate it? <laughs> right. And after two months of going on these Gemba walks and these leaders feeling more engaged and just seeing the improvement that's going on, they never bring up evaluation again. <laughs> it just becomes so obvious to them that it, it's not a problem anymore. Mm. Well, great. Well, hey, um, we, we, we should probably go ahead and wrap up here. We could, uh, uh, boy, we could, we could talk, time flies. We could talk about all of this for uh, a long time. Maybe we can do another podcast um, down the road, maybe even take a little bit deeper dive into some of these different daily lean management practices. I would invite, you know, if people have uh, specific questions, uh, you know, if we want to do a follow-up on this, you can contact me at Mark at leanblog.org. Uh, Jordan, if people have questions, can do you want to share your email address? Absolutely. Yeah, anyone can reach out to me at jpeck, P-E-C-K, at mainhealth.org. Um, if people are looking for literature on this, I'd say the, the best place to start is um, Mann's book, The Building a Lean Culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, Thetacare has, has published its Beyond Heroes and, and um, management on the mend, and that's all about this daily management type work. Yes, and uh, great, great books. And we've we've talked here on the podcast with John Toussaint with Kim Barnes uh, before. So yeah, great, great recommendations. I'll link to those in uh, the show notes. But um, Jordan, thank you so much for sharing, um, you know, about about your background and and at least uh, you know a quick glimpse into what you're doing there at Maine Health. Good luck with those efforts and. Thank you for uh, being a guest on the podcast. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Actually, before I go, I do want to say one more book is your your healthcare kaizen book is also one that I'm constantly referring to as I as I work through this. So thank you for for helping with that. It's it's been a huge resource for me, and it was a real honor to to talk to you about this. 
Okay. Well, well, thank you. And, uh, and thank you. I appreciate it. Good <laughs> talking right, Mark, to you. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.